Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Ian, good to meet you, man. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm delighted to have you here. Yeah, Ethan, I really appreciate it. Uh, looks like a lot of my colleagues have had a chance to come on here. So let's keep the conversation going. Let's roll it, man, of course. And we always love to get the podcast started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. Well, my name is Ian Thomas Safoya. Um, I am from Denver, Colorado. My birthday is Earth Day. My ancestors are O.K. Wingay and uh, Dinde, a.k.a. Hickory, Apache, and Pueblo from the headwaters of the Rio Grande. So my ancestors have been here for a very long time stewarding this place. I am the Colorado State Director for Green Latinos, which is a national environmental justice and conservation organization. And I have a bunch of other side projects that I've worked on kind of related to the environment, in particular uh, equity issues. And because my birthday is birthday, really, uh, People always ask me that one and it's kind of chicken or the egg thing, but I can always remember uh, doing something for Earth Day. And then a couple of years ago, I finally got the chance to be paid for it. You know, I think that that's something that um, not everybody gets to do. And uh, you got to consider yourself pretty lucky um, if you can be compensated for something you're passionate about. Amen to that. I love that. I always love to ask people. So you said your birthday's on Earth Day. That's cool. Where where do you think your passion for environmental action like truly originated from? Is it part of like your family values or is there some story from like your childhood that makes you really connected? Well, I mean, I, I can really remember like being taken to the library when I was a kid and my mom had me look at an encyclopedia. Yes, I'm that old. Still used encyclopedias back then. Uh, and, you know, just showing me rivers on fire and stuff. And that was just wild. And of course, you know, being indigenous is such a, we've seen the destruction, right? My elders, they talk about it. We've lost culture. We've lost ideas. We've lost wisdom. And, um, you know, really trying to reclaim that and grounded in that, you know, as far as environmentalist projects, like I said, you know, even in school, right. Your teacher has like earth day week or, birthday or whatever. And it was always just fun because it was my birthday. And so I really got started working on that. You know, by I, I was a teacher before I was in politics. And um, and I, I had Earth Day every day. It felt like that, right? So my curriculum and a lot of what I worked with kids was about that. Um, years ago, I got into government um, working on a, an agricultural paper about regenerative agriculture uh, for the mayor and of Denver. And then I learned about um, community affairs and whoa, did that open my mind? I was like, wow, I didn't even know that there were so many groups of people, uh, competing interests. How do you, how do you work and work within them um, to achieve change? From there, I went to city council, worked in city council legislative services. So what does that mean? I made the agendas run. Uh, we made the, the filming run. We helped do policy research. We made sure that we followed the legal process, right? That the bills follow a legal process from inception, usually typically within an agency, sometimes within the city, back and forth between the mayor, the votes for the city, the clerk and recorder, they're officially recorded, so that kind of stuff. Uh, in 2015, I ran for city council myself, really on a, a justice platform, included environmental. Um, and since then, you know, I mean, that kind of catapulted me uh, into larger work, uh, larger opportunities. 
um, worked in documentaries, worked on campaigns, really just on messaging is a really big part of it, messaging around um, environmental justice, around economic justice, social justice. And I eventually, you know, I, I really, the thing that radicalized me into environmental justice was the highway expansion of I-70 into my community. And it's kind of interesting because for my mom's front yard in North Denver, you can see the Cherokee gas plant tower, right? And we know that was coal, it became gas, still causing problems, still huge cumulative problems there. And so, you know, I come from an environmental justice community, but I didn't know it. Uh, I was working on food justice and riding your bike more and throwing your trash away. All things are, of course, critically important um, because it all adds up. But I didn't really understand the corporate pollution. I didn't understand the big dollars of play, the multinationals. And so they decided to widen this highway in my community. I was I was working on city council and I was watching every meeting and I'm like, man, I, this is wrong. And I didn't think that we collectively had the word for it that now everyone uses environmental racism. Like we didn't understand that it was just like, oh, well, there's water issues and there's air issues and this isn't fair. They're taking people's homes. But now we understand that. And then from there, I pivoted to taking on some core, which you know, I think we've done an incredible job as a community of elevating the concerns about Suncor, the only refinery in the state of Colorado. And now we're really trying to pivot to talk about the asphalt facilities, the terminals for pipelines that come from Texas and Canada and Wyoming, and um, where's concrete made and how are things being recycled? These are all, you know, concentrated into one community, whether that be Pueblo um, on the east side of town or in North mm -hmm. Denver. And, and, and there's places like this all across the country. And Ultimately, I met Green Latinos because I was brought to Washington, D.C. to testify against the refinery. And when I was there, I met a friend who she was fighting refineries in Houston. And so she understood what we were going through. Um, and so she's like, oh, you need to meet this group, Green Latinos. Like, they're going to go watch soccer game. And I went and I watched the soccer game. And I was like, whoa, there's like a lot of people who believe in the same platform as me they're coming from the same communities and they're like organized and networked and educating together and, um, you know, built that relationship. And, and then they called me up and they said, you know, we want to launch a program in Colorado. Are you game? And I was like, I don't know. I got a lot of good stuff going for me right now. They're like, come on. And, and here we are three years later. Yeah. Well, thanks for doing it, man. I appreciate it. I'd love to, to kind of dig into what green Latinos is and the work y'all are doing over there. But before we do that, you, you kind of talked about a million different things in this, as we've you know talked about on the show many, many times, climate change or environmental stewardship is such a complex issue. It goes really deep to the root of the way we organize our system. And I wanted to kind of, I guess, dig into two things you mentioned, which is what you learned about messaging when it comes to talking about environmental issues and specifically the topic of environmental racism. So what exactly does that mean and why did it not occur to you until later on uh, in your career? Well, I think that environmental racism means that a system is set up to disempower you. I think that even the system that is created, for example, public forums and meetings about why you don't want this project, we would pack gyms full of people in opposition to decisions. Decisions were still made, right? This is the way it is. This is the way it's always been. We're going to continue doing it this way. These are ingrained ideas of systemic problems that I think um, are in the conversation. And I, from a messaging standpoint, I think you almost need something that is a, a easier concept to understand um, than let me tell you why the highway is wrong. You got five minutes, you got 10 minutes, you know, like we, we or why the refinery is wrong, any of those kinds of things. And the other thing I learned is like, well, I mean, there's a greater conversation now about corporate, corporate greed, corporate pollution. Um, Necessarily. Yeah. And it, it, 
that really has been growing, right? Uh, when I ran for office, I ran before Bernie Sanders, but I think that Bernie Sanders united a generation and our allies from other generations. Amen to that. The idea of what corporations were doing to us, who was empowered with personhood and was using it to harm other persons and to take from their public health. And so, you know, that I think has, has really grown out of it. And I, I also think that messaging looks different depending on what level you're operating on, right? Like we've definitely been able to do great things for the city of Denver that I live in through ballot initiatives right? Running a bill at the state house or taking on a ballot initiative at the state level looks different, who you're communicating to. And then of course, national policy. And what we see in national policy in particular, from my perspective is um, who is bringing frontline voices to the front of the line. And that includes rural voices, right? We see so much leadership from the coast when it comes to environmentalism, but really Colorado is the headwater state. There are millions and millions of people and billions of dollars in agriculture. They're directly linked to the water that we have here. And so I think we have a big responsibility to lead those about 20 states uh, mm-hmm. across the line into better action. Definitely. What have you found through your experience is the most effective way to communicate um, realistic solutions to these large scale issues? Are you one who f- tries to focus specifically on your community or do you kind of think like large scale nationwide global kind of thing? Well, I mean, I think it all starts at home and then it scales up from there. Um, of course, you know, it's people like, you know, my friends will get on me if they see me and I'm like not holding on to a bottle until it's recycled, right? Because they like expect that of me. And of course, I, you know, I try my best, like everybody, if I'm not perfect, of course, like carrying things forever because we don't, we're missing the infrastructure just as an example. But, um, you know, you gotta, you gotta take the fight that's at hand in front of you, right? And that, like, whether that's a rulemaking or a hearing or there's an election cycle, right? But there is a larger understanding of cycles. Like there's no doubt of that. And as I get older, I'm more attuned to that. And I think that I had a chance to go to the Anthropology Museum in Mexico City and to climb the pyramids there and to visit these places. And when you look at the sun tablet, the one that people are probably really familiar with on people's shirts and stuff, that thing's like 20 feet across, right? So they're tracking like that many cycles all at the same time. And we need to get savvy to that, right? Like there's only windows of opportunity they're open to be on the water quality control commission every couple of years the transportation funding that comes from the federal government to your locality only comes every five years so you have to be aware and be prepared for that and kind of be have that in the background and then you got to take on what's in front of you what do you have the opportunity to change or influence at this moment because of the cycles yeah are you optimistic about the ability of the people and the government working together to kind of tackle these issues because i I tend to have kind of less faith in the government. It's very corrupt. It moves slowly. And I try to tend to focus on using free market solutions and economics to kind of fix this issue. But I kind of wanted to get your personal perspective on, on that. Well, I mean, I think it's, it's both. You know, every time I go to Washington, D.C., I come home thinking they're not going to solve our problems <laughs> because there's been so much dysfunction. I, I will say I am hopeful at this exact moment of time because we have a real chance to pass legitimate climate policy. Does it meet the full like $6 trillion we need? No, it's like three and a half, but it gets us more than halfway there. Um, It's going to be, the other thing is if that money comes to us, it's going to be solved here locally, right? Because that money that this federal government isn't going to be the one funding the solar installer, right? That's going to go down the chain to the cities, the states, the regions, the businesses, right? And so we need them to change in that mindset. Now, I've seen failure, abject failure, right? Just like the homeless crisis um, in Denver, Colorado for the listeners, you know, it's bad. 
And I've tried lots of ways, running for office with ideas, going to the legislature and losing to moderate Democrats like three years in a row. We tried a ballot initiative. Well, guess what? You can buy electoral politics in some way because only so many people can buy market time on air or mailers or whatever. So like that's a part of it. And so during the pandemic, we went to mutual aid, right? Directly serving the people with water and sanitation services that the government was failing to and the businesses were failing to too, right? So we all... There, there are solutions for everybody. Of course, businesses need to change their path, right? Would it be fundamentally huge if the oil and gas industries decided they were going to fundamentally just move into clean energy and that was all they were going to focus on and no expansion? Yes. Uh, and the government can make them do it, but the businesses could move faster, right? And you get into that with corporate responsibility. You know, We've marched on Excel's headquarters like more than 50 days in a row during the pandemic, right? Because we knew um the air pollution was connected to this and we know that these large corporations um can move faster um and you can make the government can make them do it but it does take time you're not wrong i I will say politics is sometimes more responsive at the local level you can move things faster here Mm -hmm. again than uh hoping that you'll get 60 senators to agree on something or you know with our state legislature they only meet for six months or or a few months a year, excuse me, like four and a half months a year. And so now they're kind of put on a shot clock to make decisions. Um, And so sometimes we see that move faster. Sometimes that leads to things being killed until the next year. Mm -hmm. Man, you're just trying to help the people who need it most every day. I can feel your energy through the screen. I'm I'm just so happy to be talking to you right now. Let, let's let's uh let's dive into like what is uh Green Latinos. So you said you got involved. You met them in in Washington, did you say? Uh, founded in Washington D.C. The origin of Green Latinos was, goes back to 2008 under Obama's administration. Probably the last time we had a window of opportunity to really take on climate action. At that time, they were talking about cap and trade. You know, and um, yeah. what does it look like? And cap and trade can sometimes be um, not positive for communities, right? Can because, you briefly explain what it is? Yeah, cap and trade says you have you can we as a people. It's just think of it like a budget. We have a budget. We have a budget of how much we can spend, how much emissions we can put out. And you'll be given a voucher, a dollar bill. that says this is how much pollution you're allowed. And you could trade them and move them around because you're like, I'm not making that much pollution or I've reduced my costs. I'm going to give it to this person while they update their practices. Well, that can be bad sometimes for low income communities in particular that are segregated next to energy facilities is it doesn't actually necessarily over time, it's lowering it, but people might be trading vouchers and allowing one polluter to have a lot of vouchers. And so then like they might be emitting more or harming more people who are directly there. So let's let's slow this down so anyone who's never heard, familiar with cap of trade can understand. Let's say you get like a hundred dollars worth of emissions to use in the year. And if you only use 80, you can then sell your $20 left to someone else who has say spent 120. So then they can meet their budget. That's how cap and trade for carbon emissions would work, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. And so at the national level, our founder, our CEO, Mark Magana, actually lives in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, He moved there from Washington, D.C. in the pandemic. Um, He was brought on and he had worked for legislators, representatives in California, in Washington, D.C., spent like 30 years there, worked at the White House, all these things. Great experience. He was brought in to say, hey, can we organize Latino voices? to try to move on climate action. And what became very clear was there was no network and that the typical environmental space uh, was 
low in membership of people of color to be able to activate them to make it change. So it started as this going on this coalition for Latinos on climate. Um, and after a couple of years, Mark was just like, man, this is the thing. We got to keep this going. And eventually it morphed into Green Latinos. I think when it first started, it was really about networking um, mm-hmm. people across industries. So yeah, you might be on the private sector side with a green solution. You might work for a, not an NGO um, like Green Latinos. You might um, be in a regulatory space for the EPA, or you might work for Congress, right, as an aide. But we wanted to bring them together. We wanted them to be talking because we know when we share resources and opportunities, we build power. And I think then that went on for about a decade. And boy, have we built power in Washington, D.C. We are at the table with Congress members and senators. And then I think, you know, they got to this idea. They're like, well, our, we have members now all across the country. We fly people in or we do virtual fly-ins. We have an annual summit where we get together to talk about our issues. You know, where are places we can go to make a difference and to organize large populations of Latinos um, to move policy at a local level? And I think this also comes back to what we were talking about, about where is policy coming from, right? Part of the gridlock, I think, that we see in in Washington is because rural America or the center of the country um, isn't leading, right? We might be leading, but we're not being heard as leaders. Right. And Colorado was just primed with this opportunity. We were flipping the legislature. We were making decisions that were positive, but we still knew justice was missing from the conversation. Right. That's why I was organizing locally. We wouldn't be expanding highways. We wouldn't you know, be continuing allowing a refinery to violate its permits if we were really the environmental leader with the clean air that everyone sees us as. And so uh, that's what Mark did. He called me up. He said, let's come into this space. And, um, you know, Green Latinos here in the state of Colorado is replicating the same conversation. It is bringing people together from across the state of Colorado to be networked, empowered, and educated to use their voice. And, and I come from being a teacher, as I told you before, politics. And so mm-hmm. I'm really about teaching people the civic tools. And so it looks different where I go, right? If I'm in Bayfield, Colorado, or Fruta, Colorado, or Rifle, Colorado, they're facing different issues. I might go there to talk to them and say, hey, I need you to voice your opinion to the senator, or I need you to work on this environmental justice bill with me at the state house. And then they might say back to me, we're concerned about wells and water and the city and the state are telling us it's safe, but look, we have these rashes. We have these reasons, help us figure it out. And so a lot of what my work is to use this experience that I have from working on campaigns and to really go there and, and help them accelerate what they're doing. Um, you know, it was an experiment to come into Colorado. I think now we're the funders, the people to see what the work we've done to really be a voice for the unheard. And we're talking about how we're gonna replicate this program and take it to another state. And who knows uh, what the long-term impact will be, but we do know that uh, an empowered local community fighting on their own issues um, scares the government. And if we can build a bunch of these pods together, it moves the policy, right? Because it's easy, I think, in particular with environmental racism, as we go back to it, is like, oh, well, Pueblo and North Denver, Commerce City have always been this way, so it's going to stay that way. But what happens when you start to have people from Grand Junction being like, no, we have environmental justice problems too. And you have people from Greeley, Colorado saying we have environmental justice problems too. We've seen us move legitimate policy at the legislature this last year, right? Huge omnibus environmental justice bills. Why? because our voices are not just being centered into one place where we can other them. And it's really, this is a widespread problem. Yeah. 
That's really cool. All right. I, I, I get it now. So, I mean, they say they only, you only need like three and a half percent of the population to get involved with like a protest to push like an issue. Right. I have heard, I have heard uh, documentation of that conversation before. And I've heard of national folks who, you know, they try to organize around that when it comes to stop line three or any of these other kinds of issues. Yeah, what I don't think people appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, that's such like a small number is how much power one person really has. If you go out and do something, you can inspire someone else to go out and do something. You can, you know, like have like the pay it forward effect where everyone is doing something. And what I really want people to realize if they're listening to this from the US is that we really lead culture in so many ways. So when I say that an individual has a huge impact in this country, it's really can potentially be global. And that's why I think we're failing to lead on climate, which is why I love talking to people like you. I want to ask a little bit, I understand the issues with like oil refinery, but what's, what's the, what's your, your gripe with like expanding, like a high, you're talking about expanding a highway, creating more lanes for people to drive. Doesn't that like decrease traffic is what's like the argument for or against like highway expansion? Why were you so opposed to it? Well, I'm this highway expansion had a lot mm -hmm. of facets to it. Uh, one, it was a super fun site and before it was up in the air but there's legacy pollution in the soil. They were digging it into the ground. Mm -hmm. So now you're upending all of this soil um, and potentially letting people breathe it. So that was one component of it. The second component of it is it's literally digging a hole next to a river, right? Well, we know what water does and the water table does. So now you're talking about spending energy and sump pumps to continually keep this thing empty. And also it puts it more at risk with climate crisis, right? Because if it fills with water, we are effed, right? Like that is like one way across our city. Now this project, which we sued on and we ultimately settled on for some improvements to the community ultimately wasn't what we wanted. It also required the digging of another ditch and taking up hundreds of homes to try to mitigate some of those issues. And that's- Taking up hundreds of homes? Yeah, they took hundreds Displacing of Displacing people. Yeah, they, they moved people out. And you know, if you're a property owner, you know, it's not the worst. I mean, no one wants to leave their community, but eminent domain at least helps those people um, at least relocate. But you got to think about what is the value of your house 10 years from now when these projects are done and the National Western Stock Show is done and the light rails open. And so like, how did we communicate with our community about like, how do you get the true value of your community? But they do things like blockbusting where they'll get one person in a cell and they know they're going to do construction. So what do they do? They let the yard go. They board up all the windows. Now, does that decrease your value when you're coming to sell your house on the same block or not? Right. Mm, that I can attest to that. Yeah. And so, okay, now you got to talk about the deconstruction of it. Think about how many diesel truck traffic is going to be coming through this place. Right. And the small parts of particles are the worst kinds, right. For our lungs connected to COVID. They said for those that live in Denver, mile high stadium, they were digging like five mile high stadiums worth of dirt out that would fill the inside of that right? So that's continuous traffic all day long, belching this pollution into your community, digging the hole and belching this into your community. Now about building more lanes or not, there is a concept where people say, oh yeah, you build the new lanes and people are moving faster. So they're sitting less in, in your, they're sitting less in traffic. So they're polluting less, right? And that's true for maybe the first two or three years. If you live in Denver, Colorado, you know about T-Rex, right? There was a time when T-Rex was just finished, uh, the central corridor, where I literally lived in Cap Hill and I worked in, in the South suburbs and I could get to work in like 20 minutes from Cap Hill. What is, what is T-Rex? I live in Boulder. I can't remember what the T-Rex stands for, but it literally, so it was highway expansion mm -hmm. um, from the middle, from about central Denver to the Southern suburbs. And it was construction that went on for years. 
Um, and when it was first finished, yeah, you could drive really fast on it, but there's a concept called induced demand. If you build it, they will come and you can see it in California and LA where they have 10 lanes that are wide across. They're all full of cars, right? People don't find alternative options until it's full, right? And that's when people take on other options. And I think the last part of it that I don't really like is it's the privatization of roads. Um, okay. And we've seen the toll. So there's no new lanes for regular people, right? That don't want to pay the cost. But part of the cost was subsidized for this expansion by privatizing an, an HOV lane, a high occupancy vehicle lane um, that could be used for pay if you're not a high occupancy vehicle. And so, you know, you're just empowering the wealthy to move through spaces faster than the rest of us while more pollution is being poured on the poor. It's just um, not where we support. It's not something I support. I don't support the privatization of roads. I think there are basic utilities that belong to people. That's my stance. I appreciate you for sharing that. Are you familiar with the Boring Company by Elon Musk? I do not. It's just it's it's one of his side projects. They just talk about like building tunnels under LA to get rid of traffic. Something I'm really interested in. I figured I would just throw in. Um, let Let's get into talking about Headwater Protectors because you were like you're the founder of this this organization, right? Are you the co-founder of Headwater Protectors? Yeah, co-founder of Headwaters Protectors. Headwaters Protectors was a mutual aid group that eventually incorporated as a nonprofit. Um, and what we do is we provide, like I said, basic water service and uh, trash service to the unhoused um, in our city. Why? Because we're water protectors and we know there's huge problems. You know, we acknowledge that we're an occupied Ute Cheyenne and Arapaho land, that they stewarded the water, that we know the Platte River is in bad disrepair. Um, and we're, there are actually lawsuits that are happening between the state of Colorado and the city about how we can go about improving it. E. coli is one of those issues. Well, what does E. coli come from? Feces. We know that. It's two parts to that, people and their animals and people not having access to public restrooms. And as I said, you know, with the house issues, I've tried it all. Spokesperson for ballot initiatives, running for office with good ideas. I mean, I ran on the platform with public restrooms in 2015. We've built two or three of them in all these years since, but the problem's only grown. And so during the pandemic, a lot of city buildings were closed. Places people would normally access restrooms, all these kinds of things where people would access water. Now you're in a pandemic and businesses who probably were much more amenable to being kind and compassionate to people weren't willing to risk it by having more individuals into their space that weren't paying, right? So we saw a drastic reduction in people's access to water. Now we never really had trash pickup services for the unhoused, but with more people being unhoused, it just grows and grows and grows. And what I saw was people really trying, who I really respect who are bringing water bottles, one water bottle at a time. That's a good thing to bring people water. But when you don't have trash service, those bottles pile up. And pretty soon you got a trash pile. And pretty soon the community around you is like, hey, you got a trash pile, you got to go, right? And then we're just destroying their property, moving them, the sweeps as they call them. I call them traumatic displacements. They've been going on for a very long time. So how did we reduce the water uh, or the waste? What we did was I called the people from the events industry, because guess what? During the pandemic, people in the events industry were unemployed. Mm -hmm. And I was like, here's our chance to put them back to work doing things they know how to do, like organizing safe camping, whether you're doing it for the Arise Music Festival or you're doing it for people who need to survive. Same principles. We're going to pick up water this time. We're going to clean the porta potties this many days. We got to schedule for trash. You got to have your first aid, all these kinds of things. Check in, check out. All of it exists from our industry. I wanted to put them back to work. Um, so we, we recommended a plan of putting employees back to work for that. Unfortunately, the government didn't take us up on it. 
we talked to the city, Aurora, the regional council of governments, and people are like, yeah, this is a good idea. It's still sitting there. The other part of it is, is we come from emergency management experience. Um, my colleague that I co-founded with him and his wife, Matt Cow, um, he um, and Molly, they run a company called um, uh, Majestic Waterworks, right? Mm -hmm. They bring up these water trees to festivals to cut down on bottles. You know, I'm sure you've seen that if you've gone to Whoa, music water festival. trees. Yeah, you know, just like uh, you pump water into it and there's a nozzle and like five or six people can fill their water at once. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, so we have we have those things. Um, what we needed was water access. And so we called up a, a friend who worked at Rocky Stadium. He's like, look, I got these pumps and these barrels that we mix lemonade in. And that's like literally how we pump lemonade when you buy an $8 lemonade at Coors Field or whatever. He's like, we can repurpose these and we can take barrels of water we can pump it into these trees. We can be safe during COVID. We even figured out, uh, we called UNICEF, uh, the UN, to talk about emergency stuff. And um, they showed us how we could heat our water. We can literally heat water on demand to 110 degrees in the wintertime um, to give people warm water on the streets. And um, it has been amazing. We've trained more than 350 Denverites and people from the surrounding areas on emergency systems. We also teach them about harm reduction, how to handle needles, how to how to throw away trash and waste appropriately. And what we do is live action exercise. So you come to my, we meet every Sunday, 10 a.m. Benedict Fountain Park, you find us at Headwaters Protectors. And it is, um, you show up, we talk about public policy we've been working on. You get trained on safety, how to build these water systems, how you could take a pump out of a 7-Eleven in an emergency and repurpose it to work for you and your people. And then we go out and we directly serve individuals. Um, encampments usually around the size of 200 or so people. And uh, we get all the trash cleaned up and we, in some ways we bullied the government into coming and getting it. Now we have a good relationship with them where anything we pick up, they come and get. But it's still crisis response, yeah. right? If you're picking it up, what we would love is to have a regular schedule where we're like, hey, trash is coming Tuesday, get it out Tuesday. Uh, just like any other person who's housed, right? And what we found is when you bring water to the people, they come out and you can start talking to them about their other problems. We've gone with medics and you're like, wow, let's get that closed up before it gets worse, right? Like we're just trying to show compassion and get ahead of the problems. And what I found with my national work with Green Latinos with water work was during the pandemic, everybody was talking about water shutoffs, rightfully so. We shouldn't be turning off utilities on people during a crisis. Um, but no one was advocating for the people who didn't have house keys and their loss of water access. And so um, Headwaters Protectors has gotten a lot of good coverage. We've been in some documentaries. I personally won a National Water Award, a River Hero Award for both my work with Green Latinos and Headwaters oh, yeah. together. And I got to go to the White House and, and I talked to the White House and I said, this is an issue. And they're like, no one's ever talked to us about homeless water access. And I'm like, good, like, let's solve it. Hell yeah. Let, let, me, let me get this straight. Uh, you work on Green Latinos volunteer work, right? No, I'm paid for that. State oh, I see. Yeah, I'm, I'm just curious, like where you're volunteering and where like where like your main like income sources, because you seem like you're doing a million different things. And I appreciate all of it. But I want I don't know. I'm just interested to like see how, how it works. Headwaters protectors. You know, that's just a bunch of community members who care a lot about it. And yeah, Green Latinos is my job. OK, awesome. And you're what, what is like the, the, the position in Green Latinos? I'm a state director. 
Okay. What an awesome job. Interesting. People should realize that you can do uh, really passionate work. Um, and then what's going on with uh, Waste No More? You're involved with this as well, right? Waste No More was a, so we were talking about issues that you can work on just nationally, locally. Uh, Waste No More is a local ballot initiative. So a lot of people, they'll talk about three branches of government, but I really think there's a fourth. That's you and me, where we can okay. go and organize and write our own laws. And no one really talks about that. And I kind of think it's not talked about. Um, so we don't use it and they, you know, we've exercised it and used it and they made it harder. So I've worked on, I think at least a dozen ballot initiatives here locally over the last few years. The most recent one is called waste no more. And basically it's a, uh, it's about our waste. We know our waste is contributing about 20% of our greenhouse gas emissions every year from the city and County of Denver. We know that 55% of it is like literally, um, compostable right so it's doubly working against us when it when it becomes methane and so we we also know the construction industry um, is throwing away a gross amount like 35 percent or something like that of our waste is coming from them and so we've had a lot of plans since i started working for the city in 2012 we've had a lot of plans uh, and they never seem to be implemented right and it's like oh well we missed our climate targets for 2020 oh well it's just getting worse and worse and you say well if you can't get the change to the elected leaders, you got to go to the outside. You got to push them. You got to run your own laws. And so yeah. is basically like 30 years of broken policy and promises, broken promises, excuse me, shoved into one omnibus bill. And we, when we, so for those who don't know, it takes at least nine months to run a ballot initiative because there's like a back end work where you got to write it. And there's like a legal process where you got to make sure it's legal with the attorneys and the city. And then you get, then you got to work on how it's going to read on the ballot, like actually what you would read on the ballot that gets approved. And then you got to go collect the signatures and you got like six months to do that. So when we filed, we filed a couple of environmental ones at the same time. And we were like, we don't even know if the, the, this time we didn't even know there was a vaccine, but we were like, if there's a chance, if there's a chance and the world opens back up again, we got to go, we got to move because the city has not done any climate work during the last year, none mm -hmm. during the pandemic. And we know we got to work on it. So um, yeah, so waste no more. Basically, oversight or the overview of it is: you live in an apartment or a condo, you deserve to have access to trash and recycling. So you're going to make that happen. You are a large business that produces food waste. You got to start composting it, starting with the largest businesses and phasing into small businesses. You're in construction. You got to recycle your metal. You got to recycle your concrete. Right? We're tired of just seeing all of this right get just thrown away, and it does feel kind of defeating. When you're like, oh man, I recycled all year and you see him knock down a building and throw it all away, knowing that there's metal and some of these other valuable things inside this building. That's and so wild. So we're really trying to take that on. And we collected 17,000 signatures. We found out two weeks ago, we're for sure headed to the ballot. Um, it will not be this November. It'll be next November. And I think this is a part for people to understand is we were talking about cycles earlier. Mm -hmm. kind of you have your cycle which is that nine months but there's also a cycle about like if you submit by july you're on this november ballot if you submit after july you go to the next ballot and so our six months landed in between we were trying to get it on this november's ballot uh, but with covid it was slower going um to collect petitions than we had in the past um one time we worked on a ballot initiative um and we collected nine thousand and forty days um and so you know it's if you have a good idea that people will back it up. And also I forgot one other part of waste no more. It would require festivals to have a waste management plan. 
And so we got festivals that have already made that leap to really back us. And so, you know, you go to City Park Jazz, you went to Juneteenth Festival, you saw us there, we were collecting. And so, again, it's like, you know, community gatherings don't have to do more harm. We can figure it out. I I can't believe some of the stuff that you said is already not the law. I didn't, I'm, as you were going through like those different things that you're going to have on the ballot, I was not even, and then this is just one city in the U.S. I can't imagine how much waste is being created. I, The government is so slow moving in my mind, which kind of transitions me into my next question is like, what do you think is the most effective way for us to get substantial action on huge issues, whether it be climate change or poverty or anything else that's kind of like large scale what have you found is the most effective way to actually get things done i'm thinking uh, i'm not going to say what i'm thinking i'll let you go well i mean shaming the government has always been a good one um Mm. i'll point to headwaters protectors right like if a group of individuals with ten thousand dollars could serve as a better example of getting things done than what the government can do then you win public opinion right public opinion really is the only way you move politicians. So public opinion at the federal level, you know, that's op-eds, that's marches, that's uh, large high profile events that really put people on the spot. At the state level, um, you know, passing laws and advocating for laws is like a really great way to do it. Some of that has to come from the other side. Um, Again, ballot initiatives. So you look at, um, it was called 112, which is turned into Colorado Rising right? That galvanized the environmental movement around fracking. And, you know, we didn't pass um, the setbacks because we were outspent, but it triggered huge policy wins that restructured the oil and gas commission, right? Um, At the city level, I would say the same thing. It's like direct action showing up, changing the public narrative. And then when that fails, do what I did, take on waste no more, or do what we did, which is show the solution yourself and then fight for the public media opportunities to share your ideas. And if they're good ideas, the people will see them. Cool. So I always love to do this for someone else. Uh, You got a podcast as well. What's going on at Eco Colorado? Yeah, Eco Colorado is 15 minutes of environmental news and actions that you can learn about any issue. And it's the first uh, podcast I ever worked on that's bilingual. So every episode, we release a Spanish episode and we release an English episode. Uh, right now, we're in the writing process for a four-part series on fracking and taking a look at some of the issues that are approaching us. In the past, um, some of the issues we took on were how to show up and turn out at the Air Quality Control Commission on a specific issue. Uh, another one we took a look at was, um, and unfortunately, we weren't successful, but it did raise the profile. Uh, we were trying to upgrade the protections on the South Platte River through Commerce City. And the commissioners who were unelected decided not to do it so apparently those people don't deserve upgraded river quality right and that comes back to environmental racism right we tried the right process um, and we failed but now you know we're preparing to we're trying to use the rules for ourselves now so we're going to officially ask for a petition if we have to sue we will um but you kind of have to exhaust your options before you you know you go straight to suing people if you want a chance to win definitely Am I saying eco wrong? It's echo? Uh, it's eco in English. Oh, I see. It's echo Colorado in Espanol. Oh, uh, nice. See, see. Okay, cool. Uh, what are some of the most relevant lessons you've learned through your years of activism? I'm sure you've learned so many things with each campaign that you run, you know? Well, I, I probably learned to say thank you more 
I'll tell you when I first ran for office my first time, uh, I was like, like overwhelmed to like a point where I didn't even like send thank you notes for like six months after I lost. Right. It was like, that's not cool. Like you want to like thank your supporters for the work you're doing. Um, you know, I've, I now have a better idea of like what it takes to run an office, to run for office, to do the back end work on these things that, you know, that's just, you grind that out through experience and, you know, losses, you take L's, but losses are still experience. One of mine, uh, there's a song I love by Ritz and in it, they go, you know, all my haters really love me. They just pretend they don't. I got sunshine in my pocket. I'm right here in my zone. And, you know, like, you just gotta, you gotta like stay on your stuff you can't, you got to kind of block out the haters. I think that's an important part. I think I've learned that political retribution is real. Um, when you're loud and you challenge the forces that be, it comes back. Um, maybe you lose access to things. You don't get hired for jobs and it's there. And there's a wow. and you got to be aware of that. That's powerful, man. And you're a DJ too, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you're listeners in Boulder, Colorado or Northern Colorado, I'm on KGNU. I'm also on Denver Open Media. My DJ name is Mr. Denver. And yeah. I'm only Colorado artists. So tune in, get a three-hour mix, 50 local artists from your community, all different genres, new releases, oldies. Um, and, you know, that comes back. So we're talking about political retribution. You know, when I ran for office, mm-hmm. um, some of that came after that, right? Because I was this insider, right? They got me young. I was being trained. I was on board. I was on the committees and the whole thing. And I was like, you know what? I saw behind the curtain. I was like, this is effed up. That's why I ran for office. And after that, you know, um, it was challenging to go back to that high level of work that I was doing. Right. Cause I was like in the big offices and stuff. And so that really forced me into being an entrepreneur and working on festivals, doing production work, right. Oh, the same kind of production work I was doing to produce televised um, city council meetings. I could transition to doing for television for something else or, you know, you name it. And so I, uh, I was kind of forced into doing that work. You know, I tell this story when I became an entrepreneur, I, you know, I lost, I was applying for a job that was identical to my job in another city. I had great metrics, all these kinds of things. And I got to the last thing and they told me I didn't pass the writing exam. Hmm. And I was the valedictorian at Metro State of Arts and Sciences I'd worked all these years in the government and stuff. I know how to write. And that was when I was like, mm, okay, I see. You guys are going to find whatever reason you can. There's some reason going on here. And so, you know, I turned to the music industry, worked on large festivals, but I transitioned some of the same skills I had. So like community engagement, for example, right? Like these huge festivals, like the Underground Music Showcase or the Grand Doozy, they have huge impacts on communities. And they require similar skill sets of talking to neighbors, businesses, the government, whatever, finding the middle ground so that we can move forward. And so I got involved in the, in the music industry. I found that as a way to pay my bills. And um, I've had a great opportunity to know so many of the local artists here locally. And now that I travel around the state for my job, you know, like I go to the small bars in rural Colorado and I hear the bands and I'm like, man, you're good. Like, let's let's get you on the air. Like, and, and that's been really rewarding. You know, my motto is together we rise. When I ran for office, it's still my motto. Um, you know, it's about lifting up others. And, you know, when I ran for office, I had assembled this awesome team and then I, I lost, but so many others of them like got awesome fucking jobs afterwards. Sweet. Right. So, you know, together we made it. Um, you know, not everyone gets a win at the same time. 
Uh, you know, it's just how it is. Yeah, bro, you're doing so many different things. It's really impressive. Like, I want to know how, like, how do you maintain like your energy and your focus when you're doing so many different things and you're involved in these complex, sometimes very depressing, systematic problems? You're thinking about them every day. You've spent years working on this stuff. Um, I guess the way I kind of format it is like the Simon Sinek. I'm not sure if you're aware of like the, the, the idea of like the why, which is like the core of your personality that like motivates you to keep going. I just like, how do you do it all, man? I have a lot of energy. <laughs> I was born this way. I wake up like, you know, how some people wake up in the morning and they're like, oh, I just want to lay in bed. I like wake up and I'm like, it's another day. Let's go. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel. Um, you know, I've gotten better with balancing more things by adding people to my team, mm. right? You don't, you, you know, it takes a group effort to do that work. Um, I've made mistakes, right? Overcommitted. And so I've learned to do less of that. I find that I have pillars of values and I, if things don't align within those pillars of values that I will gracefully say no, or I don't have capacity for those things at this moment. I think that requires some of it. Um, but why do I work so hard on humanitarian issues and water issues? Because I, I want to, I don't know what else to say it. Like, I feel like I was born, I was born here to do this work. And I know a lot of people say it's like really overwhelming. And when they ask me what I do and I'm like, blah, blah, blah. and then people are like, Oh man, like you make me feel like I don't do enough. And I'm like, I don't want you to feel that way. Mm. Right? Like I do me. I'm not going around saying you're not doing enough. Like, and I can't control how you're feeling, but if you want to level up, let's talk. Like, if you want to get involved, let's talk. And like, I've become a bigger connector in that sense. Right. Where like, you know, my big things are like, um, you know, get involved with a group because together we can do great things. Many hands make light work and it's not easy, but we gotta, we gotta build towards that. I want people to go to their local library and local rec centers, right? Especially when you just move to a new place, right? Feed your body, feed your mind. And guess what? Rec centers are a place where we like literally advertise for like civic things to get involved with. And then I like people to like at least volunteer for one thing, right? Like it's two hours a month or whatever. Like I know that you're really stressed and a lot of people will come to me and they'll say, I want to work on this issue. Where should I go? And I try to help point them in a direction. I will tell you, one thing, one advice I would take, especially for young people with a lot of darn energy, like myself when I was younger, was like, I wanted to create my own thing because I didn't think anything was moving fast enough. Um, but honestly, if you were to take that eight hours of like stumbling to just even create and get a website off the ground and stuff and put that eight hours into um, researching who else is doing this work, you might be able to join a team that's already operating um, people often, these groups are long in the tooth and they're looking for young energy, but they need trust. And so you got to put in a little time and then you could have access. You could have the keys to the garage, the keys to the house, right. With a nonprofit that's set up with a legacy that has funding already set up, that has a bank account that has a member list. Right. And you're not stumbling. Now I'm not saying never create your own thing. Cause obviously I do. Um, but I just, I, you know, sometimes I try to redirect people who are the most excited getting involved for the first time to say, maybe you don't have to create something in yourself the first time. Mate, you are a legend. And you just answered my last question right there. And I think that was 
that was amazing piece of advice. And that really rang true to me while I'm starting a business, which is a little bit different, but I mean, I, I couldn't agree more. There's, and like that's what you said about getting the keys to the garage. Like if you are a, a big energy, passionate, uh, kind hearted person, people will recognize that. And they'll be like, we need this guy. This guy's going to run the show. He's going to be the next whatever. So, um, Ian, man, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I've, I've loved talking to you. I appreciate everything what you're doing. I appreciate where your heart is at. I, I just, I can't thank you enough. It's been a real honor. Yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, looking forward to seeing more Justice Advocates here on your show. I'll be happy to pass some of those along. And you can follow me at Believe, E-A-N. My website is E-A-N, Tafoya, T-A-F-O-Y-A.com. About to launch a brand new website right now. We have a new primer up there. So I'm really excited about that. And of course, I just want to say thanks to my team and my family for continuing to support me through this work. Yeah. F- follow him guys. He's, if you can't tell, he's, he's just getting started. So uh, it's, it's been a pleasure, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, i got one last one. If you live in Boulder, Colorado, head over to Balsam um, and Broadway. Uh, Cause there's a new mural of me up there. Um, and I'm oh, really sweet. excited. About it. it went up like a week ago. Um, and it's just really exciting to, to be honored with the civil rights uh, memorial in that sort of way. Can I put it as like the thumbnail or something in this video or like put it at the end here? Yeah, absolutely. Cool, man. Ian, thanks so much for coming on. And everyone, thank you guys so much for listening. Of course, we'll be back next week with another episode. Take it easy. Peace out. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate. Here at Climate Change Realty, we don't just donate 50% of our net commissions to fight climate change. We also donate a full 50% of our real estate referrals. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.